in our journey through the book of Jeremiah, we've been focusing on his early prophecies. And these initial prophecies set the scene for his ministry. Well, now we're going to start looking at some of the events, some of the stories that shaped Jeremiah's ministry. And so I'll start with a brief overview, and then we'll move into this drama in the temple. Now, if there's one verse in Jeremiah that sums up his ministry, it is found in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. And this is Jeremiah speaking. Oh, that my head were a spring of water, and my eyes a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night. And this is why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. However, despite the river of tears and the frustrations, and the frustrations are because the people will not listen to God's word, but in all this, Jeremiah is faithful. He does not change tack. He clearly calls people away from idol worship and back to the living God, and he warns them of the consequences if they don't. And this creates enormous pushback, especially from the religious leaders. And we see this in Jeremiah 18, 18. They said, come, let us make plans against Jeremiah. So come, let's attack him with our tongues and pay no attention to anything he says. And this opposition continues to ramp up. In Jeremiah 20, verse 1, when the priest Pashur, son of Immur, the chief officer in the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in stocks. And these stocks were outside the temple, so everyone could mock Jeremiah. But he's not deterred. Upon release, he continues to preach God's forgiveness and repentance. But it's a difficult road. In Jeremiah 25, verse 3, For 23 years the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. 23 years. 23 years of faithful proclamation, 23 years of opposition, and 23 years of tears. And so this is the background when we come to this drama in the temple. We read this in Jeremiah chapter 26. In verse 2, Jeremiah is given his instructions by God. This is what the Lord says. Stand in the courtyard of the Lord's house and speak to all the people of the towns of Judah who come to worship in the house of the Lord. Tell them everything I command you. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen and each will turn from his evil way. Then I will relent and not bring on them the disaster I am planning because of the evil they have done. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. If you do not listen to me and follow my law, which I have set before you, and if you do not listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have sent to you again and again, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and this city an object of cursing among all the nations of the earth. So what's happening here? Well, in biblical days, worship involved animal sacrifice in the temple. So the worshippers would rock up to the temple with the animal. They'd either bring it from home or they would buy one there. After examining the animal to make sure there were no blemishes, the priest would then slaughter the animal and offer it as a burnt offering on the altar. And this is how people worshipped in those days. So by Jeremiah preaching at the temple's main gate, the whole worshipping community would hear the call to repent and turn back to God. But you say, well, they're going into the temple anyway. How do you mean they need to turn back to God? They're already going to the temple. 
But of course, Jeremiah was making it clear that they cannot worship idols alongside the living God. And that's what many of them were doing. They had idols at home or under the trees out in the countryside that they would worship alongside. And of course, as we've seen in the past, this breaks the first of the two Ten Commandments. But they were also breaking the other laws of God, especially when it comes to treating poor people fairly. And so they were oppressing the poor for financial gain. So all this was coming together in Jeremiah's message at the temple gate. Repent. If you don't, even this temple and the city will be destroyed. And the priests and the prophets are not impressed. This is a direct attack on them. It's an accusation of their failure at the highest level. So we read in verse 8. But as soon as Jeremiah finished telling all the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say, the priests and the prophets and all the people seized him and said, You must die. Remember the stocks? Remember the beatings? Well, the stakes are much higher now. We're talking death threats. Now this commotion quickly reaches the governing officials. So a hearing is quickly called to be convened at the temple gates. That was common in those days, either at the town gates or in Jerusalem at the temple gates. That's where court cases were heard. And the prosecution wastes no time. Verse 11. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and all the people, this man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against this city. You have heard it with your own ears. The prosecution rests and Jeremiah is about to speak. But before he does, the narrator inserts a story in the Bible. It's in in brackets and it's a story to help us realize how serious it is. And it turns out there was a prophet called Uriah. And Uriah was saying the same message that Jeremiah was. And when the king heard about this, he ordered him killed. But Uriah, he got wind of this and escaped to Egypt. So the king sent a hitman after him. And the hitman found Uriah, dragged him back and killed him by the sword. And so we have this rather cheerful story in verses 20 to 23. And why is it there? Well, the narrator wants us to really understand that Jeremiah's life is on the line. I mean, if Uriah was speaking the same message and was killed, then what will Jeremiah's fate be? And so Jeremiah rises to address the people, verse uh, verse 12. The Lord said to me to prophesy against this house and this city and all the things you have heard. Now reform your ways. It's another way of saying repent. Reform your ways and your actions and obey the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent and not bring disaster as he has pronounced against you. Notice again the mercy of God. Even while they're putting his prophet on trial, God still extends that offer to repent, to reform, to turn back to him. God is forever patient forever calling us closer to him. And so Jeremiah puts his life in God's hands. He continues, As for me, I am in your hands. Do with me whatever you think is good and right. Be assured, however, that if you put me to death, you will bring the guilt of innocent blood on yourselves and on the city and on those who live in it. For the truth the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. And so with this, Jeremiah's defense comes to an end. It's now time for the officials to deliberate. So which will they go? Will they declare Jeremiah innocent or guilty? Will he be set free or put to the sword? 
And we read about this in Jeremiah 26, verse 16. Then the officials and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man should not be sentenced to death. He has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. Well, isn't that wonderful news? It's almost a surprise, really, considering Jeremiah's track record. There must have been at least some people listening over the last 23 years. And then a couple of elders, we're told, stand and support Jeremiah and defend him before the crowd and explain why he should be let go. And then the court case finishes. At the end of the chapter, we read in verse 24, Furthermore, Ahakim, the son of Saphan, supported Jeremiah, and so he was not handed over to the people or put to death. God still had plans for his prophet. He rescues Jeremiah. There is so much more to do and so many more tears to be shed. And in all this, of course, we are reminded of Christ. If we fast forward some 600 years to just before the crucifixion, we can imagine it's Palm Sunday and Jesus has entered Jerusalem with all the crowds singing his praises. And then he makes his way to the temple. And just like Jeremiah, he upsets the priests and the religious leaders no end. Not only does he warn them with firm words, but he goes further. Jesus overturns the tables and throws people out of the temple. Now, why on earth is he doing that? Well, again, in Jesus' day, temple worship is being compromised. In Jeremiah's day, it was idol worship. In Jesus' day, the compromise to worship was ripping off the worshippers in at least two ways. And first was the matter of animal sacrifice. Say you had a dove or a lamb and you wanted to present this to God as an act of worship. You would take it to the temple and the priest would look at it to see if it was blemished. And what was happening was no matter how perfect was your dove or your lamb, the priest would pretend to find a blemish. And then he would direct you to the temple animals and insist that you buy one of those at an inflated price. And so the priests were skimming. They were taking the profit from the good and well-meaning worshippers. And it was very similar with the temple tax. Everybody over 20, whether they lived in, in Israel or scattered around the empire, were expected to pay a half shekel as an annual temple tax. And so they would come to the temple and they would have the local currency and the priests would say, no, we don't accept that. You must use temple currency. Go over to the money exchanges. And, of course, they would rip off the worshippers with a very high exchange rate. And so it wasn't idols in Jesus' day, but it was actually the priests ripping off the worshippers. And this is why Mark eleven seventeen makes sense, doesn't it? This is what Jesus was saying. He was saying, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Sounds like Jeremiah, doesn't it? <laughs> and this is why Jesus got up, was so upset and angered the priests. And in verse 18 of Mark 11, we read, they began looking for a way to kill Jesus. And of course, they soon get their chance. For a few days later, on the night before his death, Jesus is arrested and put on trial. And it's very similar to Jeremiah. It's the religious leaders that are prosecuting, and the accusation is very similar. What was the accusation? Well, in Mark fourteen fifty-eight, they drummed up some false witnesses, and the false witnesses said, 
We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple in three days, we'll build another, not made by man. See, remember, Jeremiah upset the priest because he prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. And this is exactly the accusation they are making at Jesus. There's a huge difference, though, isn't there? There's a big difference between the trial of Jeremiah and Jesus and the outcome. And the big difference is that for Jesus, nobody came to his defense. At his trial, there was no friends, there were no wise elders, there was nobody to stand up for Jesus. Whereas Jeremiah had elders to stand up for him, Jesus had no one. Whereas Jeremiah had officials that were sympathetic, Jesus only had Pilate, manipulated and spineless. Whereas Jeremiah had the crowd support, Jesus only had a crowd that yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. And so Jeremiah was rescued by the living God and Jesus was scourged and mocked and nailed to a cross. And though we are oh so familiar with Calvary and the cry of dereliction, the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Though we are familiar with this, we are deeply moved as Jesus gave up everything to please his Father and to bring us salvation. Jeremiah proclaimed, repent, turn from idols and back to God. Jesus proclaimed, repent, the kingdom of God is near. And it cost Jesus his life. And in the world's eyes, both these men were failures, big time failures. For Jeremiah, well, his end was that he was kidnapped and taken to Egypt where he died while Jerusalem lay in ruins. And Jesus, well, from the world's point of view, he was crucified and buried and left in a tomb. But no, these men were not failures. Jeremiah prophesied that 70 years after the exile, the Jews would return and start rebuilding the temple. And do you know, 70 years after Jeremiah and the exile, they came back. And we read in Daniel, Daniel was reading the scroll of Jeremiah and he saw that prophecy of 70 years and he prayed. And God answered that prayer and the Israelites returned home. So Jeremiah's ministry was not a failure. And of course, Jesus. And though the world mocks Jesus and the whole thought of resurrection, we know better, don't we? Because on that first Easter Sunday, the man the world calls a failure, the Son of God, was raised from the dead, just like he prophesied he would. In John's account of Jesus in the temple causing trouble, he has the story finished like this, talking to the religious leaders. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And are you going to raise it in three days? Verse 22 goes on to say, But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. You see, Jesus was faithful in the house of God. He even prophesied that he would die and three days later be raised. And he was. And so the world continues to doubt and to mock, ridicule and ignore. We know that Jesus Christ was risen. And he is the Lord to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And so, being faithful in the house of God cost Jeremiah. 
cost Jesus? What does it cost us to be faithful in the house of God? I mean, what's our take-homes today from these two quite difficult stories? Two things. First of all, we need to be intentional that when we come through these doors to worship God in spirit and the truth. In Jeremiah's day, they all had idols, things they bowed down to and offered sacrifices. But we have modern-day idols too, don't we? Sometimes we walk through the door and our family is an idol, our children. We think and, and work for more of them than we do Christ. It might be money, our bank balance. That's our idol. That's our focus. It might be our career. It might be a dream that we're passionate about. And they have become idols where Jesus is pushed to the side. And those are good things. Some of the idols can be addictions like alcohol. They can be bitterness that we hold on to, lack of forgiveness. Well, the challenge for us today is to leave those idols at the door when we come and worship the living God and when we go out the door of church to leave them and not pick them up. To be faithful in the house of God is to worship him in spirit and in truth and we need his help. We can't do it alone. And the second take-home about being faithful in the house of God is not just the area of worship, but of service. I mean, both Jeremiah and Jesus were serving God in the house of God, and it cost them. Now, God has given each one of us gifts. We're all different. We're the body of Christ, and he calls us to serve him faithfully in the house of God. In Romans chapter 12, verse 6 Paul has a list of gifts to build up the church. And he starts off in verse 6 of chapter 12 with this. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. So the person sitting next to you, it's very unlikely that they have the same mix of gifts you have. You are unique, and you being faithful in the house of God can build the bride of Christ so that it is most wonderful and beautiful. And Paul goes through this list. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If someone's gift is prophesying, let them use it in proportion to their faith. If it is serving, let them serve. If it is teaching, let them teach. If it is encouraging, let them encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let them give generously. If it is leadership, let them govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let them do it cheerfully. And this list is not exhaustive. But it's clear God has given us gifts. And to honour him, to be faithful in the house of God, we need to exercise them. So for some people, it might be serving on managers, moving chairs or baking for funerals. For others, it might be being in the music team, children's ministry or small group leading. It might be helping with an alpha or rhythm and dance. There are countless ways in which we can be faithful in the house of God. And so let's pull this together. Today we've seen one of the stories of Jeremiah, where for 23 years he'd been preaching and seen no fruit of his ministry, and yet he was faithful, even to the stage where he was arrested and put on trial. But God had plans for him, and so he was rescued, and shows us and models for us how to be faithful in the house of God. And then, of course, we compared that with Jesus. So many similarities, but the outcome was so very different. Jesus had no one to defend him. And he was found guilty and put to death. But this is all part of God's plan to bring us into his kingdom, to make us right with God, that we might 
become his sons and daughters. So let us take up the challenge, both in our worship and our service, to be faithful in the house of God. Let's pray.